You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to conference coverage highlights from Digestive Disease Week 2009, sponsored in part by Horizon Therapeutics, a company passionate about improving the treatment of mild to moderate pain and arthritis. This program features some of the latest clinical information and research findings presented at Digestive Disease Week, which took place May 30th through June 4th, 2009 in Chicago. Digestive Disease Week is the largest international gathering of physicians and researchers in the fields of gastroenterology, hepatology, endoscopy, and gastrointestinal surgery. DDW 2009 showcases approximately 5,000 abstracts and hundreds of lectures on the latest advances in GI research, medicine, and technology. Well, I'm with Dr. Henrik Nelson, Professor of Infectious Diseases at Alborg Hospital in Denmark. Dr. Nelson authored a population-based study on increased risk of IBD after salmonella or campylobacter gastroenteritis. Uh, Dr. Nelson, good to have you with us. Thank you. Uh, so tell us about uh, your study. What did you set up and how was, the, how was it your study designed? The background for the study was the observations that over the past decades we have seen increased incidences of IPD diseases in Denmark as well as elsewhere. And at the same time, large changes in society, including changes in the food production and the import of food items from other countries in the world. So far, the exact cause of IPD diseases are unknown, and the pathogenesis is unclear. So we speculated if there could be any link between initial infection with a bacteria and a subsequent development of uh, immune abnormality at the mucosal surface uh, leading to the IBD diagnosis. What led you to that speculation? That's fascinating to me that, to make that connection. First of all, in the, in the clinical situation, sometimes uh, you cannot readily distinguish the features and the symptoms the patients does present. It will only be on further workup that you can have the exact uh, IBD diagnosis. And also we speculate that some immune disturbance at the mucosal surface is closely linked to the pathogenesis of the inflammatory bowel diseases. So it was obvious that maybe some trigger, some pathogen from the outside could uh, be involved in the development of the disease. And, and what did you find? We find that in patients having a gastroenteritis, there will be a three-time higher risk for the next 15 years to have an IBD diagnosis compared with a background unexposed population. What do these results tell you? How do you interpret that? We think that uh, at some point, maybe in the susceptible host with a specific genetic background, the initial infection may initiate a long sequence of immune alterations, which will then lead to chronic inflammation. So what do you envision as uh, next steps in, in, in terms of therapy or an evaluation of patients who have this ambiguous Diagnosis. So far, we have no exact information if there could be a difference in the clinical cause of the infection if it is triggered by the infection or not. So for the clinical management, so far, we have no direct implications. But I believe that for prevention or for food safety, if we, in our population, we calculate an excess of 50 cases of IBD every year in Denmark, that corresponds to 3,000 extra cases in the U.S. solely on the ground of the uh, infection. That could be a public health implication for prevention and food safety. Well, Dr. Nelson, thanks for joining us today. Thank you.
With me now is Dr. Lauren Lane from the University of Southern California School of Medicine. Dr. Lane co-authored a paper regarding whether high-dose famotidine will reduce gastric and duodenal ulcers in NSAID users. Dr. Lane, good to have you with us. Thank you. So tell us, uh, just to start very basically, what are the risks associated with NSAIDs? Well, NSAIDs have a number of primarily gastrointestinal risks, and these risks include ulceration of the you know, stomach and duodenum, as well as more significant complications such as bleeding, perforation, and obstruction of the upper GI tract. And who is at most risk for NSAID-induced ulcers? I mean, how many people have NSAID-induced ulcers, per se? Well, anybody who takes an NSAID is at increased risk. And if we only talk about the endoscopic visualization of ulcers, it's actually quite high. The prevalence could be as high as 15 to 30 percent of people taking traditional NSAIDs. A much smaller number than that develop clinically important complications, such as I talked about, bleeding, perforation, obstruction. And that's probably closer to 1 or 1.5 percent annual incidence. There was data uh, presented on HZT501 at DDW 2009. Can you tell us a little bit about that, what it is and what was presented? This is a, a single tablet combination of a traditional NSAID called ibuprofen and an H2 blocker, an H2 receptor antagonist called famotidine, which is also well-known and frequently used. Uh, What is the uh, so-called reduced data, and what does it show? Well, there were two randomized controlled trials that compared this drug, which, as I said, is a single-tablet combination of an H2 receptor antagonist and ibuprofen, so famotidine and ibuprofen, and it was compared to the NSAID, traditional NSAID alone, ibuprofen, and the trials were six-month randomized trials looking at the development of ulcers at endoscopy that were, were done during the study. What did you find in the study? What we found is that there were fewer ulcers that occurred in the upper GI tract, stomach and duodenum, with the combination drug as compared to the traditional NSAID. Uh, what do you think this means as far as uh, interventions and treatment down the road? Basically, at the present time, it's recommended that patients who are at increased risk of developing an NSAID-associated ulcer or ulcer complication receive some sort of strategy, protective strategy. And that typically is either medical co-therapy or perhaps the use of a less injurious NSAID like a, a COX-2 selective inhibitor. So basically, what this study shows is that it may be that another, provide another medication that may also decrease the risk of developing ulcers with NSAIDs. With me now is Dr. Jeffrey Nguyen, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto and Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Nguyen studied the association between MRSA, mortality, and hospitalized IBD patients. Dr. Nguyen, good to have you with us. Thank you. So tell us, uh, to start, what your study was based on. What was the background methodology and design? So MRSA, or methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, you can call it short as MRSA, is an organism that's becoming increasingly prevalent in our hospitals. And for many reasons, our inflammatory bowel disease patients, uh, IBD for short, may be at increased risk for that. And we wanted to show that in a large population-based database of hospital discharges throughout the United States. And so what we took is we took a nationwide inpatient sample, which includes over 100,000 hospitalized IBD patients between 1998 and 2004. And we looked at this group and compared it to another comparator group of GI patients that did not have IBD. And we looked at their, for the rates or prevalence of MRSA in these populations that are, when they're hospitalized. And then after that, we also took a look at the rates at which they died in the hospital among those who did and did not have MRSA. And so those were the two main outcomes that we looked at. And what we found was that you know, after accounting for the factors that other factors that may also increase the risk of MRSA, the IBD patients who were hospitalized had about a uh, 42% increased prevalence likelihood of having a MRSA infection compared to the non-IBD gastrointestinal patients. 
And in addition to that, and I think the more key finding is that among the IBD patients, those who had MRSA had about a fourfold risk of dying while they're in the hospital compared to the non-IBD hospitalized patients. When you look at that group, those who had MRSA in that group compared to those who didn't have MRSA had about a twofold increased risk of mortality. So there's a there twofold difference in impact there. So we think that MRSA may have more of an effect or a strong effect on the IBD population if it turns out that no MRSA is the actual cause. And you were careful as well to distinguish hospital-acquired versus community-acquired and saying that it's not necessarily known based on the retrospective studies. Can you tell us a little about that? You know, I think that's very important because in the last decade, it's increasingly recognized that a lot of these infections may be acquired in the community. It's actually a very hard distinction now because, I mean, clearly there are the MRSA that's from the community and the hospital. They have different molecular markers that you can use to identify them. But, you know, up to these days, I've seen recent studies where up to 50% of the, of the infections that were detected in the hospital have, may actually be community-acquired. So it's, it's very important to distinguish whether these IBD patients have MRSA that was, was acquired before they even came to the hospital, or is it due to frequent healthcare contacts, which most of them already had. And that may have implications because if you're thinking, what can we possibly do besides you know, hospital infection control measures to prevent these hospital-acquired infections, is you know, could you potentially screen people who are colonized with MRSA and potentially treat them for that and possibly prevent the colonization from becoming an infection? You have to know when to do that. Do you do that in an ambulatory setting as an outpatient, or do you that, do that when they become hospitalized? And I think that that distinction is very important. And I think that would be probably the next step in trying to figure out you know, where do they acquire these infections. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for your time. You're very Welcome. I'm with Dr. Nizar N. Zane, Chief of Hepatology and Medical Director of Liver Transplantation at the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Zane is co-author of the study on cumulative incidence and risk factors of hepatocellular carcinoma in patients with end-stage liver disease secondary to non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Dr. Zane, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me to be here. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your study and how you designed it and what you found. So this is a study related to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is a general term that would include the patient with steatosis of the liver as well as non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. So we know that today, we know today epidemiologically it is by far the most common liver disease in the United States and in Europe. And we also know that it is heavily linked to metabolic syndrome and its components such as obesity, diabetes, and hypertension. We also know that at least a small proportion of patients with non-alcoholic steatohepatitis will go on to develop liver cirrhosis and complications. But what we really don't know is what is the risk of liver cancer and as an outcome in patients who develop cirrhosis from non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, and that was the main focus of our study. We identified a fairly large cohort, probably the largest that's been published to date, in which patients had liver cirrhosis. We knew the time of diagnosis of liver cirrhosis, and they had one of two diagnoses, either cirrhosis related to non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or cirrhosis related to hepatitis C infection. So we looked over a median follow-up time of 3.2 years. When I say median, it means there were quite a few patients who were followed five years and six years and seven years. But the median follow-up time was 3.2 years, during which about 17% of the entire cohort developed cancer. Then we looked at the hepatitis C population separately from the non-alcoholic steatohepatitis separately, and we found that the risk for cancer in hepatitis C is slightly higher than that of non-alcoholic steatohepatitis-related cirrhosis, but both seem to pose significant risk for cancer. 
we estimated what we call it the cumulative annual risk for cancer development in these patients. And we found that in liver cirrhosis from non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, that risk is about 2.7% per year, which means 2.7% uh, of the population will develop cancer each year. And it's cumulative incidence. So you can argue that 10 years down the road, about 27% of, the, of this population will develop cancer. In the hepatitis C cirrhosis population, that cumulative annual incidence was about 4% per year. And you, you were looking to identify some potentially modifiable risk factors to lower the burden of incidence of liver cancer in the in patient populations. Uh, what did you find there? Absolutely, we did. And we looked at multiple factors, but of which there were two independently associated with risk of liver cancer in a patient with cirrhosis from, non, from non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And those were older age. So the older the patient is, the more risk of cancer there is. And obviously, this is a non-modifiable factor. But uh, the modifiable factor we found was alcohol intake. We concluded that alcohol intake, even in social quantities, as most people would think of it as a small amount of alcohol intake on a daily basis, was associated with significant increase in the risk of cancer in this population. So if this is true, one can make the argument, although it will require a separate study to prove, that by counseling the patient about complete cessation of alcohol when they develop cirrhosis from non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, that we would expect that the burden of liver cancer or new cases of liver cancer in this population will go down. I am going to add that a small quantity of alcohol intake was also significant for the risk of cancer in the hepatitis C population as well. So it was significant for both populations. So it is really an important finding. Dr. Zain, it was great to have you with us today. Thank you very much. You have been listening to conference coverage highlights from Digestive Disease Week 2009, sponsored in part by Horizon Therapeutics a company passionate about improving the treatment of mild to moderate pain and arthritis. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening. ANSEV Associated GI Toxicity. 107,000 hospitalizations, 16,500 deaths per year. With the decline in use of COX-2s due to safety concerns, the use of chronic NSAIDs such as ibuprofen has increased, resulting in GI ulceration. And recent studies show less than 30% of patients at high risk for GI complications were prescribed GI prophylaxis therapy, and roughly 37 to 60% of patients are non-compliant. Horizon Therapeutics is developing innovative combination therapies for the treatment of mild to moderate pain and arthritis. Horizon Therapeutics products are designed to provide pain relief without increasing GI side effects and to potentially improve patient compliance. To learn more about the Horizon Therapeutics story, visit www.horizontherapeutics.com.